Levy today. And, uh, Jane, you're out in California, so I know it's a little bit early as we tape this, but uh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much, Doug. It's nice to be back with you. Yeah, good to have a chance to uh, talk to you again. I know we talked uh, about a year ago when uh, the hardcover came out. What's it been like in the last year for you? I mean, it's such a great topic to write about. So many people you know, grew up uh, loving Mickey Mantle. Maybe some people that weren't around then, I think they got a good taste of what he was like just by reading your book. I'm sure you've gotten a lot of feedback. Um, it's, it's been unbelievable, and it continues to be. One thing that's become clear is that Mickey's hold on the American imagination has not lessened. And, and that's extraordinary, considering that, you know, the guys and some of us little girls who <laughs> consider ourselves Mickey guys are, are getting up there. And yet people who never saw him play have inherited their father's and sometimes their mother's passion about the sport, about the team, and about this guy. So in the last year, um, you know, I have heard from hundreds of, of people, um, you know, some offering um, constructive criticism, and, uh, you know, actually, we actually make mistakes, and in publishing these days, you get to correct them, which is great. <laughs> um, and some offering new pieces of information that are, you know, uh, become part of the new mosaic of, of the new paperback. Um, You know, it just flabbergasts me. Every time you think that the well of history is dry, you find out better. I got a a call um, from a Baltimore cop. Um, It was actually a Facebook, and then we spoke, um, saying that he had arrested Mickey Mantle for public drunkenness in Baltimore one night. It's Charles Street when the uh, Yankees and uh, he and some of his cronies were on the way back from dinner out at one of the swank Baltimore restaurants. And this guy was a rookie beat cop just out of the Marines. And, you know, back in the day, in the mid-60s, he told me, you know, beat cops were told to take public drunkenness seriously. So when Mickey, you know, couldn't stand up and he collapsed at his feet and he was being rude and crude and abusive, you know, he kept warning the players with him, you know, I'm going to have to make a decision here, I'm going to have to do something, and they all thought he was kidding, because who's going to arrest Mickey now? (laughs) Well, you know, finally he goes to the call box, because back then, you know, no pagers, no cell phones, no computers, and he calls for a paddy wagon, and the paddy wagon shows up, and the officers in the paddy wagon say, you know who this is? (laughs) And he said, yeah, it was his father's hero and his hero. And they all looked kind of askance, but they stuck him in the paddy wagon. And in those days, he said, you know, you had to drive yourself down to Central Booking, so he gets there, and the old salt lieutenant looks at him, and he says, you know who this is? <laughs> he goes, yeah. And he said, uh, with um, more colorful language than I can employ at this hour, uh, do you know what the you have done? And he said, this is how it's going to be. We're going to let Mickey now go. I don't think we want to be arresting the Mick. And um, he's told this story for years, wherever he's gone. <laughs> and he earned the enmity of every other cop and the beat. And, uh, he, you know, it had never come to light. Well, I know you talk about it in the book, uh, your, your encounter with him in Atlantic City, and, and uh, you hear other stories over the years. Uh, I mean, it really is a sad part of his life that he had the problem with alcohol, but, but he did get, uh, it was not, I guess, brought to light 
back then. I guess it was a different era back in the 50s and 60s with sports writers. Uh, I guess with the Kennedys, too, it's the same thing. A lot of stuff, you know, came out later about the Kennedys. Maybe they just didn't report that kind of thing, right? No, they didn't. I mean, it was a liquid era in America. If you look at the Ken Burns series that's on PBS now, um, based on my friend Dan Oprin's book about prohibition, right. you know, this is a very wet country, and the tension between wet and dry, particularly the dries in Oklahoma, where Mickey um, was raised, has always been there. And, you know, when he was growing up in Commerce, Oklahoma, his parents moved there in 1935, um, you know, nobody knew Bill W. There weren't AA meetings at every local church. Nobody understood that alcoholism was a disease, much less an inherited one that puts you at greater risk if your aunts, your uncles, your parents, your grandparents, you know, had the same genetic makeup. So when Mickey Mantle, age 19 of him, comes to New York with a plethora of temptations, flesh, fleshly and otherwise, he's in no position to resist. And he has no guidance or education or sanction telling him not to. Because in those days, you know, you weren't a man if you couldn't hold your liquor. Mm. Don Larson told me, you know, when I was interviewing him, you know, in this sort of very judgmental way, well, personally, I don't think he could handle it as if it was some moral failing. Mm. You know, he had a disease, and he was a very high-functioning alcoholic, and alcoholism is a progressive disease, and it got worse and worse. Wasn't that terrible in the 50s? It was began to show in the early 60s, and they really got worried about him. And then by the middle 60s, it was really bad. And then in his after-baseball life, where he had nothing to do and no way to make a living other than, you know, as he put it, play golf and get paid to go to cocktail parties, you know, it was a complete setup. Yeah, it really was uh, in, a, in the wrong place uh, with that type of problem because uh, basically a lot of those guys, Willie Mays and you know, Hank Aaron, those guys from that era, they didn't really have the way to make a lot of money, at least the way they were in baseball, unless they did the glad-handing kind of routine. And, of course, Mickey being in that environment, particularly when he had the restaurant, too, uh, later on, that, that wasn't the best place he should have been, I guess. But somebody once asked Aaron, you know, after he got out, what, um, you know, how, what he was doing to make a living, and he looked at him kind of shocked and said, I'm being Hank Aaron. Mm. Well, you know, what else could you do? And he didn't have multi-millionaire contracts. He didn't have agents. Whatever they had um, wasn't much and tended to go through it. Mickey certainly did. He, you know, he had the mentality that a lot of people who grow up poor have, which is as long as you had a thick wad in your pocket and you felt secure that way, you didn't think about money. He was unfailingly generous. I mean, you know, if you went to a coffee shop in Manhattan and he liked the way a waiter, you know, approached him, which is to say probably didn't make a fuss over him and didn't ask for an autograph, he might leave a, he might leave a $50 tip on a 50-cent cup of coffee. Wow. And that was a great era of New York. I grew up in New York, but a little bit after, you know, the era of Mickey Mantle, but you hear places like Twitch Shores and uh, Danny's Hideaway, all those great nightclubs where the ballplayers would go after games, because predominantly most of those games were played, I guess, in the afternoon back then, or a lot of them. They'd go out at night and be seen in public, so, right? Sure, and, and it was to the saloon keeper's advantage to keep them there. So what do you do? You give them drinks on the house. Right. You know, and, and so it was a complete, um, you know, uh, 
a circle of, of reinforcing bad biology with bad tendencies and bad influences. And he, you know, you don't want to say he was a, a sacrificial lamb. There is human will, and he did finally exercise it near the end of his life when he finally uh, belatedly acknowledged his alcoholism and got sober. Um, and I was saying to Sam McDowell one day, you know, the great Southern sure. Sam, who uh, was a great pitcher whose career was also derailed by uh, his alcoholism and who almost lost his life to it, but got sober and became a drug counselor and has done a world of good. It was a guy who created the first um, education programs for the Texas Rangers and the Toronto Blue Jays. You know, I said, well, Sam, it's really kind of too bad that he had so little sober time. And he scolded me. He said, you should know better than that. That's not a tragedy. A tragedy would have been if he had had no sober time at all, mm. because it is such a difficult disease to overcome. It required great fortitude and desperation for him to do so. Yeah, some of those interviews you saw uh, toward the end of his life, I think Bob Costas did one and, and a couple others maybe, you're going to see in his eyes the sadness that, that he had that uh, you know, he, he lived that type of life. He, he felt the regret in, in his eyes. I guess he also saw a bit of a peace as well, right, that he came to grips with it. Although, unfortunately, by that time, the liver had given out and he had to go through that whole thing, right? Uh, yeah, I think he made as many amends, as they say in AA, as, as he could in that limited um, you know, a very finite period of time. I think he did as much as he could to repair his relationships with his sons uh, as he could, but, you know, they too had sustained a lot of damage. They had the genetic load and the permissive uh, household, you know, um, where everybody, as Merlin told me, was just drunk all the time. She said by the time they should make a Christmas dinner, and by the time they got to dinner, they were all drunk so much on the eggnog they made that, you know, nobody wanted to eat it. Mm. Uh, she said we had the best stock bar in town. She certainly wasn't surprised that her sons and she herself uh, struggled with um, alcoholism. And when you look back and just reading her book and, and hearing about all the injuries he went through, he had, really had bad knees, obviously from the, the injury in 51, I guess, in center field, but even before that, the uh, osteomyelitis, the, all the other issues he had to deal with, plus his father dying young, all that you know, disease in his family. It's amazing he uh, compiled the numbers that he did, isn't it? It is, you know, and that, that injury in right center field at Yankee Stadium was 60 years ago today. Yeah. Game two of the uh, 51 World Series, it's sort of the forgotten World Series for everybody but Mickey anyway, um, because that was the one played after the Bobby Thompson home run. Um, but in game two, Willie Mays, who was New York's other rookie center fielder, hit a tweener between DiMaggio and center and Mickey and right. And Spangle had told Mickey to go for everything because Joe's heel was hurting him, and off he went. Um, and at that point, he really could outrun the wind. And so he gets there, and just to find Joe D camped beneath the ball, and of course in baseball, as you well know, if the center fielder can get there, it's his ball, and he doesn't have to call for it or, you know, um, you know extend an invitation for the other guy to get out of the way. So when Mickey tried to stop his own considerable momentum, he told me it felt like his knee went through the front of his leg. And they did, medicine didn't have either the technology to diagnose it or to fix it. And today we would say he blew out his knee. 
yeah. um, and you know, torn MCL, ACL, and cartilage. And he played on that injured knee, not just for the next 17 years, but he played the next two years without any medical intervention at all on an unstable, unrepaired knee. Mm. And it was during those years, 52 and 53, when people were saying, oh, he's a disappointment, you know, he's not doing everything that this 51 rookie uh, spring training led us to believe he was going to do. What he did was astonishing, given the degree of disability. And you mentioned the osteomyelitis. That's another new thing I've got in the book, this woman from um, Phoenix um, uh, reached me and said that she had some information about Mickey's treatment at Oklahoma Purple Children's Hospital in um, 46, I think it was. I may have the year wrong, because uh, believe it or not, I don't memorize my own work. <laughs> um, and uh, it turns out that her uncle, her late uncle, had become a very prominent physician and dean of the Oklahoma Medical School, uh, was then a young resident. And um, he, she said, administered Mickey's antibiotics. And not only, not only did he administer them, but the supervising physician, a guy named Dr. Garrison, um, had learned of a soldier, Fort Still, who was receiving penicillin for an injury. Now, in 46, penicillin was not yet mass-produced. And up until then, the only um, medicine that was available, as expensive as it was per dose, went to soldiers on the front line. So what they knew then, which we wouldn't even think twice about now, was that the drug that was not used by the body was excreted in a patient's urine. So he sent this young physician, Mark Johnson was his name, to Fort Still with a jug to get the soldier's urine. And they brought it back and they distilled the penicillin out of it and gave it to Mickey Mantle and saved his leg. And when Mickey Mantle was done with it, they collected his urine and excreted that penicillin and used it for somebody else. Mm, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, away. Well, it's a great book. Again, uh, we've been talking with Jane Levy, The Last Boy, Mickey Mantle, at the end of America's childhood, just out in paperback uh, this week. And uh, Jane, uh, I know if people want to get a hold of you, can they do it on a website, or what's the best way? Yeah, um, uh, you know, I have. I, I always joke people should call it at, you know, www.me.com. Um, <laughs> Uh, it is jlevy.com, and uh, and I do write. Uh, excuse me, I do write back, and I do make corrections. <laughs> excuse me, I'm sorry, Doug. And if anybody has any suggestions uh, for this or anything uh, new, great, great new idea, please let me know. Great, and what, you got another topic uh, in the works that you can talk about, or? Uh, I would talk about it if I had it. Um, <laughs> so I, you know, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do next because I spent all year updating this. I'm doing writing for the uh, new website um, that Bill Simmons um, uh, has oh, at, sure. uh, yeah. called Grantland. Um, it's www.grantland.com. They're doing great stuff. I have an excerpt actually in there today and a story about the update of the book. And so I'm doing some writing for them. I think they're doing great stuff. This is off the topic, but that really has changed, hasn't it? But I mean, your business, the newspaper business. Online. I mean, do, do, are you optimistic about how that's going, Jane, as far as uh, keeping it going uh, online, the newspaper business? Well, you know, I, I edited the uh, 2011 edition of uh, Best American Sports Writing, which is also just due out. And um, the series editor, Glenn Stout, 
sent me, I think, a hundred stories, somewhere about a hundred stories to read. Many of them, you know, thousands and thousands of words, very few of them from newspapers. And being an old newspaper guy, as it were, I was astonished at how little of what was considered the best writing of the year um, came from, you know, sports pages. Mm. Uh, a lot of it was from, you know, magazines that do big features, um, but even more from websites, large and small, you know, ESPN.com, but there's also sportsliterate.com, all sorts of places. Um, where really wonderful and writing is being done. And as the guy who edits me at Ramblin said, the good thing about the new form is, you know, nobody says cut from the bottom. Right. <laughs> yeah, there's unlimited space. That's, that's a good thing. <laughs> that isn't always necessarily a good thing for a writer, by the way. Sometimes a good thing for editing, somebody... but yeah, right. For, right. Uh... <laughs> well, it's a pleasure to talk to you again, Jane. Uh, the name of the book again, The Last Boy, Mickey Mantle, The End of America's Childhood. And when you do the next project, uh, we'll have you back on again. Thanks for being with us today. Love to do it. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thanks, Jane. Talk to you again. Good talking to you. Bye-bye. Stan Brock. 30 years ago, I formed Remote Area Medical to help people overseas. But then we found generations of families in America isolated by poverty from the health care they need. Together, we can take dental, vision, and medical help to a million adults and their kids right here at home in the United States of America.